And for our reflection this afternoon, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 through 15. Genesis 3, 1 through 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. If we take Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, and Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 15, as alluding to that angelic being we know as Satan, then the portrait of the serpent that's given us here in Genesis 3 is certainly consistent with Satan as he's portrayed in this passage here in Genesis 3. In both the Isaiah and Ezekiel passages, Satan is presented as a creature that's destructive, envious, prideful, rebellious, and self-willed all of which attitudes he tempts people today to adopt in their attitude toward God and toward their fellow humans. Although God made him the highest among the angelic beings, as suggested by Ezekiel 28 and verse 14, yet he wasn't content with that position. He wanted to be like God and even to rise above God for that matter. And the suggestion in Scripture is that for his rebellion against God, he, along with the angels he influenced to rebel against God, were cast out of heaven. Genesis chapter 3, the portion we read, gives us some insight into how Satan, this malevolent creature, works. And it's good from time to time to remind ourselves of the enemy with which we contend. The Word of God tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, 
but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. And one of the basic rules of warfare is to know the enemy against whom we're fighting. So let's look through this passage, very familiar passage. We have gone through this before, but let's identify, remind ourselves of some of the way in which he works. First of all, suggested by verse 1, is that he works, Satan acts, he works with great cunning. We're told there in verse 1 that he was more crafty, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And it is craftiness, the word of God tells us, he came to the woman, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And it's interesting to note that whereas he lost his position in heaven, there's no indication that he lost his powers. There's no indication that he lost his wisdom. Of course, with an exception, the only power he lost was the power of doing good and being good. That's the only power he lost, which means that any power he possesses, he corrupts for his own wicked, evil ends. So when Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 12, and assuming of course that this is a reference to Satan, many believe, many commentators believe that both the Isaiah and Ezekiel passages ultimately have in view this being called Satan, whereas Ezekiel 28 verse 12 speaks of him as being full of wisdom, what he does with that wisdom is to turn it into trickery and craftiness, is to distort that wisdom into cunning. Notice that in attacking Eve with his evil design, he did not approach her directly. He did not approach her as he really is. He came in disguise, camouflaging his identity. He came to her as an earthly creature, a serpent, through whom he spoke to her. And clearly, part of the way in which he works today, part of the way in which he has always worked and continues to work in our time, is through craftiness and deception. That is why in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul warned the Corinthian Christians, even as we are warned today, Paul, in warning these Christians of Satan's strategy, writes, he says this, but I am afraid as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Note also that part of his deceptive tactics, he came to them in the form of a mere earthly creature. He came as one inferior to them. And in doing that, what had the effect on them of putting particularly Eve at ease and off guard? We say particularly Eve because scripture makes it clear that Adam was not deceived. Eve was deceived. Adam went along with her in clear violation of God's word and rebellion against God. One of his modes of operation is to prey upon the unsuspecting so that it is in ways that we least suspect he can assault and gain a huge advantage over us. That is why we are told in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, and no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He comes as an angel of light. 
of light. At times he comes as a roaring lion, but at times he comes deceptively. And if we are not mindful of that, if we do not keep in mind his mode of operation, then we can easily be floored, we can easily be defeated. And that is why in our Christian walk, we always have to be on the lookout for his deceptive strategies. He hardly ever comes to us revealing his true colors. That is why we cannot rely on our human senses. We cannot rely on mere human faculties. Why? Because he's a supernatural creature and he's a creature of amazing intelligence and cunning. That is why scripture calls upon us to walk by faith and not by sight. Secondly, notice in terms of his mode of operation, he attacks the mind. He, he attacks the mind. Verse 1b, he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the way in which he puts the temptation to her by raising a question immediately, what is it doing? It has the effect of inducing her to say, as it were, you know, come to think of it. I mean, he never really said we can't. And if you notice what she did, his playing upon her mind had this effect, whereby she actually begun to add to what God had said. Because she said, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. And of course, that's what God said. Verse 3, but God said, you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. That is true, but notice what she did. She added to the word of God. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So he got her effectively to question to the word of God, to raise questions regarding the integrity of God's word. And in so doing, she was led, she was induced to question whether or not God was good after all. Satan attacks the mind. This was a question that was designed to get Eve to doubt the word of God. And the way he works today, my friends, is very much the same way he plays upon our minds, our minds. See? Uh, through our minds, he's capable of doing tremendous damage to our walk with God, just as he did with Eve here in Genesis 3. He beclouds and befuddles the mind, creating doubt as to what the word of God actually says. Note again, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Again, we, Paul says, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds, see, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The way he works is through the mind. He attacks the mind with doubts. He attacks the mind with questions. He attacks the mind with suspicion regarding God's goodness and the integrity of his word. That is why in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, we're instructed to bring our minds into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We read, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations that every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of of Christ, the greatest area of warfare today is in the arena of the mind. That's where real spiritual warfare is. You see, today, whenever spiritual warfare comes into a discussion, what many people have in mind is this idea of Satan as this bizarre figure 
creating havoc and causing people to do all kinds of weird, spooky things. That is not really spiritual warfare as seen in the Word of God. The true spiritual warfare, the battlefield of true spiritual warfare is in the mind. If Satan can get us in the area of our thinking, if he can affect us in the area of how we, what we think and how we think about God, how we think about the Bible, how we think about the things of God, then he has won the day. That is why Romans chapter 12 verse 2 encourages us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 23 calls us to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. That is very important. We need to protect this. We need to protect our thinking. We need to protect our mind. Why? Because that is the target that Satan readily assaults. Yes, he attacks us in our bodies, but the most effective way, seems, he gets us is in the air of our minds, our thinking. Thirdly, in terms of his mode of operation, Satan misrepresents God's word. He misrepresents the word of God. He tells the woman, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Not only does he instill questions, in our minds regarding the trustworthiness of the word of God, but what he also does, he brings us to the place where we deny its truthfulness and its trustworthiness. He protested to Eve, you will not surely die. Clear contradiction of what God had said. We have to watch that. We take our cue for truth from what Scripture says, not from what the culture dictates. We take our cue from the Scriptures and not what is popularly banded about. And we need to take our stand on the Word of God, even when it is not the most popular thing to do. We need to stand squarely and solidly on the unchanging Word of God. And then fourthly, Satan, notice in verse 5, maligns God's character. He maligns God's character. He said in verse 5, he says there, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In essence, what was he saying here? He was saying to Eve, you know, God is really hiding something from you. And the real reason he doesn't want for you to eat of the fruit, because he knows full well that the day you eat the fruit, you're going to become like him. Eve, this is time for you to express yourself, to assert yourself, to be your own person. Isn't that what he says today? Be yourself, self-actualization. You know, and, and he, he, we're, he, you know, he might not say to us today, there is no God, but if he can get us to the place of seeing God in a bad light, if he can misrepresent God to us, making God out to be not a God of love, not a God of mercy, if he can get a picture of God that is contrary to what God reveals of himself in his word, then again he has won the day. Here he casts aspersion on the goodness of God and the loveness of God, as one person describes it, the very core of the connection between God and man. And as I said, he does so by subtly suggesting that God was selfishly withholding something, some good, from Eve, which 
If she were to take that fruit, then she would be just like God himself. He was striking at the very love and goodness of God for this couple. He was seeking to drive a wedge between this couple and God. And then would you notice, fifthly, in terms of how he works, he's selective in the way he works. He's selective as to his timing. He's selective, as we note here in this passage, of his targets. He's selective of his targets. Now, he didn't go to the man. He didn't go to Adam. He went to Eve. And the question is, why did he appear to Eve and not Adam? Well, some say, well, he approached Eve because Eve was alone. And we know, based on the text, that that was not true. That's not true. How do we know that? Because verse 6 tells us that her husband was with her. You know, it's amazing. We can be reading things for years in the scriptures, and then all of a sudden something pops up. We didn't realize it was there all along. And this is one of those verses that I'm familiar with the argument, well, she must have been alone Why Satan came to her. But here, Scripture explicitly says, it's right there in the text that Adam was with her. And so the question is, why was he selective in his target? I'm going to leave that question unanswered. <laughs> Suffice it to say that he's so smart a creature, he knows exactly why he went to the woman. He knew her vulnerability and he knew that somehow he could get her by the proposal he put forward to her. He's selective in his targets. Let me say this. He's selective in his timing. He knows exactly when to hit us. And he's selective in his mode of operation. He's selective in the kind of temptation he brings to us. That is why after the temptation of our Lord Jesus, we are told that the devil left him. He departed from him for a season. Why? He's very cunning. He's very smart. He has his timing. And when we imagine that we are having victory, that we are living holy, that we are overcoming temptation, there is a temptation to think, oh, I've grown so much. I'm growing so much in holiness. And what we do not realize is that part of the issue might well be that he's just not harassing us for the time being. <laughs> but here's the point. Oh, when he comes, he comes with a vengeance. And that's the time he leaves many a giant floored. That is why the word of God tells us, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. He comes when we least expect him and he comes when we are least alert. Well, let's look, turn our attention to Eve, because we know, of course, Eve is beginning to slip. She is beginning to fall. She is eventually going to fall. Adam is going to follow suit, and he is going to transgress against God. What was the roots? What was the root of Eve's sin? And there are various things we could say, and I'll, I'll list them without much comment. I'll just list them. Notice, first of all, doubt. She was induced to doubt the word of God. Why? Because of the question that Satan posed to her mind concerning the trustworthiness of God. 
We sin against God. We fall into sin the moment we begin to doubt the word of God. Because when we doubt the word of God, we remove the basis for believing and trusting in what God says. Not only was there doubt on Adam's part, but notice secondly, part of what led to her downfall was this, her deliberating with Satan on what she already knew to have been the clear word of God. She deliberated with Satan. She argued with him. She parleyed with him. Watch our Lord Jesus when he was in the wilderness of temptation. The devil comes to him and he makes his suggestion, turn these stones to bread and so on and so forth. And what did Jesus do? Jesus did not stand there arguing with him. What did he do? He appealed right away, straight away, at once to the word of God. It is written. Each time the devil came to him, it, again, it is written. It is written. And here's the point. What Eve did not realize and what many do not realize today is that our minds are no match for his. Once again, he's crafty. He's filled with cunning. He's filled with all kinds of tactics, malicious tactics. He is smarter than we are. That is why we cannot reason our way out of temptation. We always have to go to the word of God, making that our appeal, making that our defense. So there was doubt on Eve's part. There was deliberating with Satan and what she already knew to have been the word of God. But then, of course, notice the logical progression, distrust, distrust. And then desire, lust. She took her eye off the word of God. She took her eye off the will of God. And my friends, let me say this. We make ourselves easy prey of Satan. We are given to all kinds of temptations, lust, you name it, the moment our eyes are off God and his word. Because here's the point. If it's not the word of God and it's not God that is the focus of our attention, something else has to take center stage in our hearts and lives. There was distrust. There was deliberating with Satan. She already knew to have been the word of God. There was doubt. There was desire or lost, and then discontent. Not being satisfied with her lot. As a creature of God, as a human, she wanted to be like God, and hence she took of that fruit, and then, of course, outright disobedience. She took, she ate. You know that the tragic thing is that every choice we make to sin carries with it consequences, consequences. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. The Bible warns in Numbers 36, verse 26, and be sure your sins will find you out. What were the consequences of Eve's sins and Adam's sins, Adam and Eve's sins? And we begin by saying this, that Satan, the way how he works, fulfills absolutely nothing of the promises that accompany his temptations. His temptations are like apples which appear so rosy, so Luscious, but within those apples are disgusting worms. As attractive and appealing as his promises appear, they are all but deadly poisonous lies. 
In the passage before us, we see that all his promises were fulfilled, came through in ways which were destructive. That's precisely how his allurements continue to work in our time. They lead downward to a path of death and destruction, to utter frustration and misery. Let's look at what Satan promised. Satan promised Eve enlightenment concerning good and evil. He promised her enlightenment concerning good and evil. Verse 5, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, what did both Adam and Eve receive? For sure, their eyes were open, but open to what? Open to the dreadfulness and horror of evil. Open to see how shameful and filthy and defiled they had become because immediately after they ate of the tree, what happened? Shame came upon them. They hid themselves, realizing for the first time that they were naked. That's what sin does. Sin promises all that's rosy, all that's bright, all that's fulfilling, all that will give the thrills, but in the end, it is poison that will prove fatal to those who partake of those allurements. Satan induced Eve to imagine that eating of the forbidden tree would make her wise, but instead of her and Adam becoming wise, in the words of Romans chapter 1, 25 they became fools exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Not only did Satan promise enlightenment, but he promised equality with God. He said, you'll be like God. You will be as God. Verse 5, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. But here's the point. No sooner had they eaten of the tree than they realized how much unlike God they were. They realized that they were filthy. They realized that they were wretched. They realized themselves to be what? Distant from God. In fact, they were afraid of God. They hid themselves by Adam's own confession. I heard your voice. And I hid myself because I was afraid. Sin causes us to be filled with fear, even of God, as good as he is. They had no desire for fellowship with God. Look at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Men and women outside of Christ are doing just that. Today, running away from God, hiding from him. And even when the convicting power of his word, of his truth, comes home to them, what do they do? They seek to stifle and suppress it. They want to have nothing to do with God. They hid themselves because they came to the frightening realization as to how evil and wicked and treacherous they were against God and against his goodness. And they came to the sad realization that God's threat of judgment was all too true. God had warned them in Genesis 2 verse 17, From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. You will die. That's what God said to them. And the question is, did they actually die that day? Did they really die that day? Of course they did. Right at that moment they died. Now, they might not have died physically, 
But they certainly died spiritually because what is spiritual death? Spiritual death is alienation from God. The very fact that they were hiding from them was a mark of spiritual death itself. Death, spiritual death, what is spiritual death? It is separation from God. It is alienation from God. It is to be in a state where one does not desire God. Of course, you have eternal death. That will be the lot of all those who have died outside of Christ, or if Christ coming uh, finds them not saved, they'll enter into a state of eternal separation from him. And here's the tragedy. We often think that somehow if God, if it were possible that God would change his mind and let them into heaven, they would be glad to go. The sad truth is that when we study scripture, we look at the nature of man, we look at man's attitude toward God, certainly we could say this, that even if it were possible that the offer was made to them to enter heaven, taking them out of hell, they would not want to go to heaven. Why? Because their nature is all wrapped up in sin. They're not fit for heaven. In fact, the prophet Isaiah, with this we draw to a close, he says, in Isaiah 33, 14, he says, The sinners, he says, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness hath seized the hypocrites. And he says this, Who among us will dwell with everlasting burnings? The person outside of Christ, the person who is not saved, would find heaven to be a real hell. Why? Because there's nothing in their nature that answers to anything that spells desire for God. The heart unrenewed hates God. And that's what sin did to our forebears, Adam and Eve. And the outworking for Adam and Eve then, in terms of what that spiritual death looked like, first of all, verse 7, guilt and shame. If you ask the question, what are the features of spiritual death? Here they are. Guilt, shame, verse 7. Alienation from God, verse 8. Sin alienates, sin distances the soul from God. And then another mark of spiritual death is fear, a dread of God, whereby one hides from him. We could go on and on, and we see the outworking of sin. Sin not only affects our relationship with God, Adam and Eve sinned. Their sins not only affected their relationship with God, but it affected their relationship with one another. Because notice in verse 12, what begins to happen? They began to turn on each other, Adam and Eve, in terms of blame shifting. Why have you done this? God said to Adam, he says, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me and I ate. In other words, God, if it wasn't for this woman, then I would not have eaten it. Isn't that what people do today? We see the outworking of sin in families, blame shifting, alienation. Thank God for the redeeming grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the good news of Genesis chapter 3, the good news is Genesis 3.15. Because right there in the Garden of Eden, right in the midst of their fallenness, right in the midst of their shame, when all the features of death were upon them, spiritual death, God declared, I will put enmity. He said to the woman, between your seed and his seed, you will bruise his head and he will bruise his heel. That was referring to what? Calvary. When our Lord Jesus hung on the cross, when he was dying for our sins, what was he doing? He was crushing the head of the serpent. In the process, his heel was bruised. He was pierced for our sins. On account of his death on the cross, praise be to God, you and I, 
are redeemed. That's the good news of the gospel. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the free gift of God, gracious gift of God, is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord.